Here it is. From deep inside your radio. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know a lot about human nature at this point in time, but we do know this, I think, that um, if there's no negative consequence for unseemly, inappropriate, illegal behavior, you might just get more of it. So um, it's not just enough that we don't perp walk or punish the top executives of corporations who, oh, let's just take a hypothetical hypothetical example, uh, help to destroy the world economy with uh, a mountain of fallacious debt built on subprime mortgages. It's not just enough that we don't do that. Uh, they're... Their misdeeds have to be tax-deductible. Case in point, when BP agreed last week to pay the federal government and the five states $18.7 billion in the settlement over the uh, Deepwater Horizon thing, the Department of Justice heralded it as a big win. The largest settlement with a single entity in American history, said the Attorney General. Help repair the damage to the Gulf economy. The uh, 18.7 was a fair penalty, she argued, for the company that led to the worst offshore oil spill in U.S. history. But, yes, of course there's a but. BP could end up paying far less than that $18.7 billion because a lot of it could end up being deductible from its taxes. It could save up as much as... as, much as uh, $4.66 billion, reducing the total settlement to $14 billion. BP, of course, isn't the first corporation to take advantage of the legal system to deduct the fees they owe for breaking the law. According to Fusion.com, that's typical in big environmental and bank settlements. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Only $5.5 billion of the settlement is considered a penalty under the Clean Water Act, according to the Department of Justice. Everything else, including payments for coastal cleanup, is tax-deductible. The company can simply claim those settlements as a business expense, according to a report from the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. Those deductions, of course, will be paid for, in turn, by you and me. You're welcome, BP. Hey, have a, have a nice weekend on us, says uh, a senior analyst with the Public Interest Research Group. It's a gray area in the law. Yeah, it looks very gray to me. Almost, almost darker. BP may be able to argue that because 80% of the Clean Water Act penalty is going to the five affected states, that money also qualifies for a tax break. BP could have been on the hook for a lot more money. The judge in the case, Carl Barbier, ruled last September that BP was grossly negligent. If you were a person, that would be bad news. That might that might be big time time behind the, uh, you know, some steel bars. He ruled that the company could face up to 13.7 in Clean Water Act penalties alone, based on the size of the spill, far more than the 5.5 eventually agreed upon in the settlement. So they got away with $8 billion that the judge said they might be liable for. 
just because they settled. The uh, settlement probably took into account the fact that some charges were tax deductible. I'm sure that was bargained for and they were more willing to pay a higher sum if parts of it were tax deductible, says Edward Sherman, a Tulane University law professor. Best evidence that BP came out of this smelling like an oiled rose, the company's stock price rose by more than 5% after the agreement was announced. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't want more bad behavior, make it tax deductible. Hello, welcome to the show. From the home of the homeless, the edge of America, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's uh, midsummer, and uh, a lot of people are taking time off. But you know what isn't taking time off? The use of, the inappropriate use of the word so. If you want me to love you, all that you must do is just say so. How do you respond? So, Warren, 
this is a conversation that's uh, very timely for me. Are there any circumstances under which you could conceive it being appropriate for permission to be asked? So, Warren, I, I agree. That so the Carl dealer then should have to ask you uh, for your for permission to take your picture uh, and use it in the manner that we heard described. So the the manner in the way it was described was I just happened to walk on the lot. Do you get to rehearse? Do you get to play with the instruments on board to check they're still working? So let, let's take a really simple example of a valve. But even then, the, the technology at launch would have been a few years old, I guess, because it, it needs to be locked down many years before launch. Absolutely. So you're building a complex system. So Yes, they do. It's a complex system of saying so, or absolutely so, or so Warren. Ladies and gentlemen, how's that thing where we're uh, training the Syrian rebels, the moderates, you know, the, the good guys? How's that going? Um, news from outside the bubble tells us that we're training 60, count them, 60 Syrian rebels to fight against IS, according to the Guardian newspaper. Testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee, U.S. Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter, we call him Ash, revealed the United States government is currently only training 60 fighters, a number which he said was, quote, much smaller than we hoped for. Well, don't tell ISIS. In 2014, the Pentagon had announced it intended to train 5,000 moderate Syrian rebels a year. Over the next three years, so 15,000, we are 14,940 moderate Syrian rebels short of the goal at this point in time. uh, Carter did try to justify the low number by noting there were 7,000 potential fighters currently being vetted by the United States. He said the number of trainees was so small because of the strict criteria being imposed, like don't be a terrorist. This included screening recruits to ensure they had no history of atrocities. Yeah, that's going to take a while. And a willingness to campaign in a way that complies with the laws of armed conflict. That'll take longer. This was in the midst of a bruising hearing at which Republican senators peppered the defense secretary and the joint chief of staff chairman with tough questions about the Middle East policy of the Obama administration. John McCain repeatedly pushed Carter on whether the administration had promised recruits that we will defend them against Bashar Assad's barrel bombs. The defense secretary was evasive and insisted that the question of whether U.S.-trained Syrian rebels would fight against regime forces or only against IS would only be made when, quote, we introduce fighters into the field. Never too late. But I, I bet there's 60 of the best and the most moderate. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. When it counts, it ain't there. Now, the apologies of the week. Right up here at the top. We're so sorry. Hundreds of United Airlines flights were delayed this week, as you know, after the airline experienced computer problems for the second time in just over a month. According to United, the glitch was caused by an internal technology technology issue, not an outside hacker. A router problem reduced network connectivity for several software applications, according to the spokeswoman. United 
has had three chief information officers in the last four years. The current one joining last September, it has suffered several technology lapses in that time, some leading to mass delays and cancellations. It struggled through a series of computer outages in 2012 after switching to the passenger information system of Continental after they merged with United. After a 2010 merger, United uh, chose to combine many computer systems and frequent flyer programs all at once. Executives believed any interruptions would thus be short-lived. By contrast, Delta and Northwest integrated their systems in stages after their merger. After Wednesday's problems this week, United apologized to customers so they could change travel plans without being charged. But this merger thing is, uh, is working out nicely for somebody. Comedian Amy Schumer got involved in the recent national discussions on political correctness after making several jokes about race on her Comedy Central show. She had previously pushed back at critics in the past who accused her of having a blind spot for race jokes. But in exchange with a fan on Twitter, she said now she wants to take responsibility for what she said. One of her jokes was, I used to date Latino guys, now I prefer consensual. Her original comment was, I enjoy playing the girl who time to time says the dumbest thing possible, and playing with race is a thing we're not supposed to do, which is what makes it so fun for comics. By which she meant so much fun. Now she says, I wrote this joke two years ago. I used to do a lot of dumb jokes like this. I used to play a dumb white girl character on stage. Once I realized I had more eyes and ears on me and had an influence, I stopped telling jokes like that on stage. I am evolving as any artist. I am taking responsibility, and I hope I haven't hurt anyone. And I apologize if I did. And if-pology, ladies and gentlemen. Deadline New York, Ariana Grande, or Grand. You tell me. Has apologized for a second time for licking donuts and saying, I hate America. Why would you do that? Oh, please. She said in a video clip posted late this week, she's disgusted with herself. Babe, babe, take it easy. She adds she didn't clearly convey her true feelings in her first apology, in which she ranted about obesity in America. Seeing a video of yourself behaving poorly that you had no idea was taken is such a rude awakening. It's like you don't know what to do. I was so disgusted with myself, I wanted to shove my face in a pillow and just disappear, she said. I don't think that's really a very um, cogent plan for disappearing. Unless you've got a very, 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 very big pillow. TMZ had posted a video of her licking donuts and saying, I hate Americans, I hate America, inside a donut donut shop in Southern California. And now, she says, I'm going to come forward and own up to what I did and take responsibility and say I'm sorry. She said to her close to one million viewers on YouTube. Meanwhile, the donut shop in question had its health rating reduced from an A to a B because of the incident. Health officials said the shop violated state food laws by leaving the donuts and out unprotected and exposed to customers and to TMZ. The U.S.'s top psychology association colluded with the Pentagon and the CIA to devise ethical guidelines, supposedly, to support post-9-11 interrogation techniques that have since been labeled torture, according to a report issued this week. Some members of the American Psychological Association, including senior staff, sought to, quote, curry favor, unquote. I love curried favor. So spicy. With defense officials, according to the probe commissioned by the board of the APA. These individuals issued an ethics policy that aligned with government interrogation techniques after 9-11, such as waterboarding and sleep deprivation. These are psychologists, ladies and gentlemen. 
The association colluded with several government agencies, including the DOD and CIA, to devise ethical guidelines for the interrogation program. The government agencies, quote, purportedly wanted permissive ethical guidelines so that their psychologists could continue to participate in harsh and abusive interrogation techniques being used by these agencies. APA's principal motive in doing so was to align APA and curry favor with the DOD, the Department of Defense. There were two other important motives, to create a good public relations response and to keep the growth of psychology unrestrained in this area, unquote. Well, why didn't you say so? Well, they did. APA's ethics director, Stephen Benke, worked with a military psychologist to draft the organization's public policy statements and also received a Pentagon contract to train interrogators. The report said he didn't tell the APA board about his involvement in training Defense Department staff. Responding to the findings, the APA, the largest professional psychology organization in the country, at least they'd like to think so, they're professional, said it would review its policies and urge a ban on its psychologists from participating directly in interrogations. Quote, the organization's intent was not to enable abusive interrogation techniques or contribute to violations of human rights, but that may have been the result, said Nadine Caslow, who led an independent review committee that commissioned the report. We profoundly regret and apologize for the behavior and consequences that ensued, she continued. The uh, APA did create a task force in 2005 that reported there were no ethical violations of psychologists' participation in the enhanced interrogation program. Benke reportedly collaborated behind the scenes about the eventual content of that task force's report, according to this week's review. The report found that ethical guidelines prioritized the protection of psychologists, even those who might have engaged in unethical behavior, above the protection of the public. Unquote. The review also found that two former APA presidents sat on CIA, CIA advisory committees. One of them told the intelligence agency he didn't think sleep deprivation constituted torture. Well, he's crazy. Deadline Portsmouth, England. Church leaders have apologized for putting children at risk of child abuse by not firing a pedophile priest. This came as Terry Knight, who in 1996 admitted abusing boys, has for the second time been convicted of abuse in the 1980s. During a trial over historic abuse claims, Knight, now 76, revealed to jurors how the church asked him to promise to control his behavior after mothers of child victims confronted him in 1985. Claims of a cover-up have been repeatedly denied by the Church of England in Portsmouth, but now the diocese admitted the church put other children at risk by leaving Knight in his post between 85 and 95 when he was arrested. The former Bishop of Portsmouth, Timothy Bavin, apologized for not reporting Knight's confession to police and treating it as a pastoral issue rather than criminal. Bavin has previously allowed a clergy member convicted of child abuse back into the church in 1990. He later apologized for that. He's a serial apologist. He said, I do offer a sincere apology on behalf of myself and the church to all who were abused by Terry Knight. They were badly let down. Bavin, now living a monastic life, said Terry confessed to some inappropriate behavior in 1985 with boys to me, but not, it did not admit any f actual physical contact. Knight told him he'd apologize to the parents and said it would not be repeated. The former bishop now says, I was wrong to have accepted his word. Spokesman for the diocese said, We apologize unreservedly that the reaction of the church in 1985 was not more robust and that these actions may have put others at risk. 
Knight had uh, told jurors, or testimony had told jurors, that uh, he had asked boys, including the victim who was aged 12 or 13 during the abuse in the 1980s, to put on leather lederhosen. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Come on. Leather lederhosen? Who could resist? Hours after Dallas Mavericks basketball team owner Mark Cuban detailed his day leading up to center DeAndre Jordan snubbing the Mavericks to return to the Clippers after he had originally agreed to go to the Mavericks, ESPN's Chris Broussard apologized for not con- contacting the Mavericks owner before tweeting a report that he was driving around Houston desperately looking for the address of Jordan, who was reportedly holed up in his house, being guarded by several Clipper players and the coach to keep him from being in contact with the owner of the team he had agreed to sign with. I should have attempted to contact Mark Cuban before reporting what my sources were telling me. I recognize that I tweeted hastily, I'm sorry for it, and I will learn from my mistake, said Broussard. And Jordan himself, the center who said he was going to the Mavericks and then changed his mind, decided to resign with the Clippers after they occupied his house for two days. He apologized to Cuban and Mavericks fans on Twitter. Quote, I want to publicly apologize to one of the best owners in the world. I'm humbled by Cuban's kindness and understanding. I'm sorry to have a change of heart. Signed, DeAndre Jordan. That's what it was. The heart. It was the heart that changed. You know, the brain brain wanted to still honor his commitment, but the heart, the heart had to be, you know, the heart has its reasons. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, news of the warm, won't you? I don't think you have a choice at this point in time. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. A climate-induced change of male dragons into females occurring in the wild has been confirmed for the first time, according to Research at the University of Canberra, Dan in Australia, published in the journal Nature. Blame Nature. The researchers who have long studied Australia's bearded dragon lizards have been able to show that a reptile's sex determination process can switch rapidly from one determined by chromosomes to one determined by temperature. Lead author Dr. Claire Holloway at the University of Canberra said we had been previously able to demonstrate in the lab that when exposed to extreme temperatures, genetically male dragons turned into females and got their own reality show. No! Now we have shown that these sex-reverse individuals are fertile and that this is a naturally occurring phenomenon, unquote. Using field data from 131 adult lizards and controlled breeding experiments, Dr. Hollily and colleagues conducted molecular analyses which showed that some warmer lizards had male chromosomes but were actually female. By breeding the sex-reversed females with normal males, we could establish new breeding lines in which temperature alone determined gender, or she calls it sex. In doing so, we discovered that these lizards could trigger a rapid transition from a genetically dependent system to a temperature-dependent system. We also found, she adds, that sex-reversed mothers, females who are genetic males, laid more eggs than normal mothers. So in a way, one could actually argue that dad lizards 
make better moms. Put that in your pipe and do something with it. Uh, Research at the University of British Columbia has uh, shown that seabird populations around the world had declined by 69.6%, equivalent to a loss of about 230 million birds in 60 years. Here's, Here's one seabird, the eider duck, responding to the news. Seabirds are particularly good indicators of the health of marine ecosystems, said one of the researchers. When we see this magnitude of seabird decline, we can see there's something wrong with marine ecosystems. And the eider duck agrees. The dramatic decline is caused by a variety of factors, including overfishing of the fish seabirds rely on for food, birds getting tangled in fishing gear, plastic and oil pollution, introduction of non-native predators to seabird colonies, destruction and changes to habitat, and environmental and ecological changes caused by climate change. Seabirds travel the world's oceans foraging for food over their long lifetimes, returning to the same colonies to breed. So colony population numbers provide information to scientists about the health of the oceans that the birds call home, although they can't actually call. They don't have the digits to make the... Seabirds play an important role in marine ecosystems. They are eaten and are eaten by a variety of other marine species. They also transport nutrients in their waste back to the coastal ecosystems in which they breed, helping to fertilize entire food webs. The study was published in PLOS 1. It was the first to estimate overall change in available global seabird population data. The eider ducks are bummed. Either down, you might say. Like a sound you hear that lingers in your ear, but you can't forget from sundown to sunset. It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere.
from California, from Southern California, in fact. This is Le Show, and, and there's more news of the warm. How about that? As the climate changes, plants and animals are on the move. So far, many are redistributing in a similar pattern as habitat that was once too cold warms up. Species expand their ranges toward the poles. Boundaries closer to the equator have remained more static. Bumblebees, however, appear to be a disturbing exception, according to a study in the journal Science. A comprehensive look at dozens of species. Who knew they had that many bumblebees? It finds that many North American and European bumblebees are failing to track warming by colonizing new habitats north of their historic range. Simultaneously, though, they're disappearing from the southern portions of their range. Climate change is crushing bumblebee species in a vice, says ecologist Jeremy Kerr of the University of Ottawa. The study's lead author, the findings underscore the importance of conserving the habitat the insects currently persist in, says a biologist with the uh, Xerxes Society for Insect Conservation. He was not involved with a study where bumblebees vanish. He says the wild plants and crops they pollinate could also suffer. This was uh, based on a data set of more than 420,000 observations dating back to 1901 of 67 bumblebee bumblebee species in North America and Europe. Again, who knew they had... Who knew that many... Overall, they found that some bumblebees have retreated as many as 300 kilometers from the southern edge of their historic ranges since 1974. The rusty-patched bumblebee, for instance, has disappeared from parts of the southeastern United States. Southern species are also retreating to higher elevations, shifting upward by an average of almost 300 meters over the same time period. Meanwhile, few species have expanded their northern territories. And it turns out climate change was the only factor that had a meaningful impact on the large-scale range shifts, not pesticide use. Bumblebee ranges began shrinking even before the neonicotinoid pesticides, which are believed to be responsible for honeybee colony collapse, came into play in the 1980s, says the co-author Alana Pindar. She says the retreat from southern territories is a huge loss for bumblebee distributions and happening surprisingly quickly, like a lot of the rest of this. ExxonMobil, the world's biggest oil company, knew as early as 1981 of climate change, seven years before it became a public issue, according to a newly discovered email from one of the firm's own scientists. Despite this, the firm spent millions over the next 27 years promoting denial of climate change. The email from Exxon's in-house climate expert provides evidence the company was aware of the connection between fossil fuels and climate change and the potential for carbon-cutting regulations that could hurt its bottom line over a generation ago factoring that knowledge into its decision about an enormous gas field in Southeast Asia. The field off the coast of Indonesia would have been the single largest source of global warming carbon dioxide pollution at the time. But Exxon's public position was marked by continuing refusal to acknowledge the dangers of climate change, even in response to appeals from the Rockefellers who founded the darn company. Over the years, According to The Guardian, Exxon spent more than $30 million on think tanks and researchers promoting climate denial. They're quoting Greenpeace. Exxon says this week it now acknowledges the risk of climate change and does not fund climate change denial groups. Never too late. Oh, no, it is. You know, if, if the lizards can change sex, the least the bumblebees can do is change their address. Although global concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere has continually increased over the past decade... The mean global surface temperature has not followed the same path. A team of international researchers 
have now found an explanation for this slowing down in apparent global warming. The incoming solar radiation between 2008 and 2011 was twice as much reflected by volcanic aerosol particles in the lowest part of the stratosphere than previously thought, according to publication in Nature Communications. For the lowest part of the stratosphere, little information was available so far, but now the International Climate Project combined with satellite observations from the Calypso study provided new essential information. According to the study, the cooling effect due to volcanic eruptions was clearly underestimated by climate models used for the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. Since more frequent volcanic eruptions and the subsequent cooling effect are only temporary, the rise of Earth's temperature will speed up again, the scientists say, because of the continuously increasing greenhouse gas concentration. But uh, in the first decade of the century, the average surface temperatures over the northern mid-latitude continents did increase only slightly, now explained by the new study on volcanic aerosol particles in the atmosphere. Overall, our results emphasize that even smaller volcanic eruptions are more important for Earth's climate than expected, say um, two of the researchers. So stop global warming, feed your local volcano. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now... After failing to criminally prosecute any of the financial firms responsible for the market collapse in 2008 because, see the earlier part of this broadcast, former Attorney General Eric Holder is returning to a corporate law firm known for serving Wall Street clients, the firm of Covington and Burling, according to The Intercept. More interestingly, the American Law Daily reports that his return celebrates a homecoming as Holder rejoins the firm as a white-collar partner. This is home for me, said Holder. It was a a return six years in the making, like while he was attorney general. He says his work at the firm will be kind of a, an intersection of business law, public policy, international relations. That's where I want to be, he told the American Law Daily. The uh, law firm had Holder's return in mind since the day he received a nomination in the Obama administration. It's been a project I've been working on since I started as chairman in 2008, said the chair of the law firm. When it moved to its new office late last year, one or new building late last year, one office stood empty, reserved for Holder's return, the corner office on the 11th floor. This all happened while he was Attorney General of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. The Covington and Burling client list has included four of the largest banks, including Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. Lobbying records show that Wells Fargo is still a client of Covington. It was also deeply involved defending MERS, 
Responsible for falsifying mortgage documents on an industrial scale, court records show that Covington in the late 1990s provided legal opinion letters needed to create MERS on behalf of Freddie May, fa- sorry, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and several other large banks, according to an investigation by Reuters. In uh, 1999, as Deputy Attorney General, Holder authored a memo arguing that officials should consider the collateral consequences when prosecuting corporate crimes. In 2012, when he was Attorney General, his enforcement chief admitted during a speech to the New York City Bar Association the Department of Justice may go easy on certain corporate criminals if they believe prosecutions may disrupt financial markets or cause layoffs. Uh, On his way out, Holder said the culture of banks improved during his tenure. He insisted prosecutors had been right to level, quote, record-setting penalties, unquote, against institutions, which are paid for by their stockholders rather than their executives, rather than trying to, quote, make examples of people. Holder also, if you remember on this program, we pointed out in 2012, he made a, in March, he made a speech at Northwestern University law firm, eh, law school, um, defending the Obama administration's practice of holding Tuesday morning meetings in the Oval Office to decide which suspected terrorist the president wanted ordered killed that week, saying in the speech, quote, the, the Constitution guarantees due process. It does not guarantee judicial process, unquote, Eric Holder. And now news of AFPAC. Afghanistan remains one of the most dangerous places in the world to be female, according to NBCNews.com. Things are very gloomy for women, and it's getting worse. Worse, says an activist and campaigner, Wasma Fro. Criminality and violence are at the heart of the problem, said the head of Afghanistan's Women, Peace, and Security Research Institute. Women are being killed, raped, and harassed on a daily basis much more than ever before and overtly, she said, blaming much of this on generalized lawlessness. The brutal lynching of religious scholar Farhunda in downtown Kabul earlier this year, murdered and then her body burned on the incorrect allegation that she had burned pages from the Quran, was the latest in a series of stark reminders of the many threats facing Afghan women. Women's mortality rates are much higher than men's, even when factoring in male combatants in the war. The U.N. calls the rates of violence against women in Afghanistan exceptionally high, up to 87.2% of women having experienced some form of violence. What else is going on over there? An Afghan government delegation met with Taliban officials in the Pakistani capital for the first time this week in a significant effort to open formal peace negotiations. New York Times quotes Afghan, Pakistani, and Western officials saying that. The meeting was brokered by Pakistani officials after months of intense effort by the new president, Afshraf Ghani, to get them more centrally involved in the peace process. Pakistan's foreign ministry said the participants had agreed to continue the talks. A representative of the Taliban's official political office in Qatar said the delegates to the Islamabad meeting, quote, were not authorized to attend such meetings and suggested they'd been hijacked by Pakistan's powerful intelligence service to appear. It's been long known that the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, had supported, had been supporting the Afghan Taliban. Afghan and Western officials did not identify the Taliban representatives who attended the meeting, calling them senior leaders. There was no comment from the Taliban's main spokesman about the meeting. 
On the Afghan side, officials said the delegation was led by Hekmat Karzai, the deputy foreign minister, and a cousin of the previous Afghan president. By the way, the new Afghan president, Ghani, had uh, nominated a woman to be a justice on the Supreme Court. That nomination was rejected by the Afghan parliament. And this week, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction issued a new report on U.S. efforts to develop the rule of law in Afghanistan, saying defense, justice, and state departments have spent over $1 billion to develop the rule of law in Afghanistan. The Department of Defense could not identify all the funds it has spent to date. Without a better system, DOD will continue to lack financial accountability for rule of law programs funded by taxpayers. U.S. agencies lack a current comprehensive interagency rule of law strategy to help plan and guide such development efforts in Afghanistan. Without that strategy, U.S. risks spending taxpayer funds on programs in a haphazard manner without assurance that we're achieving our goals. All three agencies have had problems measuring the performance of their respective rule of law programs. Those efforts are undermined, says the IG, by significant challenges from pervasive corruption in Afghanistan's justice sector. U.S. agencies are still not consistently assessing the sustainability of their rule of law programs. In one, U.S. Agency for International Development doubled funding, even though it knew the Afghan Supreme Court was not interested in funding or in sustaining those activities. Yes, that's how it looks from here. But how does it look from there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, giving you a front seat at fighting season. From the abandoned U.S. TV truck in downtown Kabul. Big enough to sleep in, small enough to double park. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're pick and pack, the moving on brothers. And this is Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan Double Cross. Like the Red Cross, but even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, my brother, mm. a good week for our beloved country. Really? Mm. The Taliban are having a very good fighting season, yeah. taking more territory than they ever did when a certain call-in show host was president. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but we won two big international cricket games. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our traditional national sport mm. ever since the British made us learn it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, be grateful. Huh? The Americans may have been pests, but at least they didn't make us learn baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hello, this is Heckman, long-time cousin, first-time caller. Heckman, how's that special edition Corolla working out for you? You, you gave our cousin a car? I... No, just a modified lease deal. <laughs> <laughs> modified? I'm losing my shirt on that deal. <laughs> Speaking of deals, my dear cousin, uh-huh. I hear you were involved in some discussions with our Taliban friends this week. Uh, well, oh, he was probably just trying to unload his lease on one of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's true. Oh. I was there mainly to make sure our pa- Pakistani friends who were there couldn't... Uh, be there without me being there. So, sounds like a complete success. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they were there too, but uh, I think we we made some progress. Oh, what? Uh, they're giving back territory they've taken? No. They're considering a ceasefire at the height of fighting season? No. So? They agreed uh, not to murder and burn the body of your Supreme Court nominee. <sighs> 
Well, you know what they say. A journey of a thousand miles begins with checking your odometer. <laughs> <laughs> so, my dear cousin, whom I think I actually remember, <laughs> do you have a question for us? Uh, yes, I do. Good. Do you have the home uh, phone number of the head of Pakistani intelligence? He's waiting for my report, but uh, <laughs> one of my Taliban stole my iPhone. Well, I don't want to go all tech head on you, but uh, you know you can use the Find My iPhone feature in your computer to locate it, can't you? Well, uh, I could, except they also stole my computer. <laughs> <laughs> and they say car dealers can't be trusted. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I don't have the phone number. If I did, I couldn't give it to you on the air. If I did give it to you on the air, I might as well be a female Supreme Court nominee. <laughs> Thanks for the call. You know, I think he was at the family reunion last year. Really? Was he the guy that binged on the fish kebabs? Mm -mm. He was the guy who said I owed him the service manual for the Corolla. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the Taliban have a copy. <laughs> hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Sheriff Joe Don Spradling of uh, Custer County, Alabama. Oh. Long-time sheriff of Custer County, Alabama. First-time caller. Ooh, welcome, sheriff. Uh, and uh, let me say, first of all, I was never driving that fast. <laughs> uh, no, it's not about a ticket. Although I'd be glad to give you one kind of as a souvenir of this phone call. Oh, that's okay. We're, we're cutting back on collectibles until I get back into a palace. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Uh, well, I was calling because I saw this uh, report by the... Uh, Inspector General fellow for mm. your country, mm -hmm. uh, saying you were still having rule of law problems. Mm. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, have you folks got the thing where you uh, you arrest certain kinds of people uh, because they just don't look right to you? Uh, yes, we have that. I think I put that in. <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I don't know what the IG was talking about. Mm. Sounds like you... Uh, you're right up to date with what we like to call our best practices. God bless you. Oh, and thanks for the call. Oh, and uh, thanks for the show. We we turn it up real loud in the solitary wing. Well, hello, our solitary friends. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed nice. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, bringing up the whole rule of law thing has made our phone board light up. Or maybe we just got our main electricity back. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're still on the generator. Hello, you Hi, I'm uh, I'm Eric, newly uh, former attorney general, long-time non-caller. You notice they always wait until they're out of office to call us? <laughs> well, we had to wait until we were out of office to have a generator. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, are you calling about the rule of law report, or are you just glad to hear us? <laughs> uh, uh, just calling to verify something. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, some, a thing in our constitution... Uh, guaranteeing due process. Oh, we're very familiar with that, mister. Used to be attorney general. <laughs> uh, and, and do you have the provision which uh, I enunciated in a law school speech that uh, that doesn't mean judicial process, uh, so that, for example, mm -hmm. a, a president consulting with his aides on whom to assassinate, uh, that constitutes due process? Well... I uh, certainly uh, consulted with my aides. Oh, no, in fairness, they were all your relatives. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, of course, uh, I, I can't f uh, officially endorse anything uh, legal in my new position defending the world's largest banks, mm. but just as a private citizen, I can say... Uh, 
Sounds good to me. <laughs> well, thanks, Mr. Used-to-be-A-G. Uh-huh. And if you ever talk to the people who run those banks... Oh, uh, I, I do quite regularly. Well, you might tell them your friend Hamid could use a little consulting gig on the side. Okay. Uh, on the side of what? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. Ah, uh, just time for one more. We don't want to delay the start of this Pashtun life. Hello, <laughs> you're on Cars I Talk. Hey, fellas. George on the horn. A long-time uh, ex-president, mm. first-time uh, caller on, on, on an insecure line. <laughs> oh, George, I think insecurity has been your gift to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on this rule of law thing, mm. you got the thing where uh, when your election uh, results need a little uh, massaging, mm. your Supreme Court can step in and uh, uh, sprinkle a little uh, law dust on the whole deal? Oh, you better believe we have that. Mm-hmm. It's not all purple fingers. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, and just get a couple of gals on that bench and you're right up to current standards on the rule of law deal, of course. <laughs> I'm no lawyer. Well, but uh, you're not a ruler anymore, either. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Jim MacArthur Foundation, rewarding near excellence with the subgenius grants. Legal services for cars I talk by the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us again for the next edition of Cars I Talk. <laughs> Good K there. <laughs> this is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio.
News of our friend the Atom, ladies and gentlemen. Arriva, France's nuclear giant, you knew they had a nuclear giant in France, has been aware since 2006 that the steel vessel of its flagship new generation reactor that confines radioactivity is faulty. That came out this week. Until now, it was thought Arriva had only recently become aware of the very serious anomalies in its $10 billion European pressurized reactor, the same model sold to Britain. In April, it was revealed that excessive amounts of carbon in the steel at the top and the bottom of the re- reactor vessel, forming a shell around it, could cause cracks which could prove disastrous since the vessel houses nuclear fuel and it cannot be replaced during the lifespan of the reactor. However, according to a French satirical and investigative weekly, the company was aware as early as 2006 that, quote, a serious problem risked compromising the solidity of the heart of several of, of its reactors, unquote, despite this critical safety issue. According to the magazine, Arriva had not seen fit to alert anyone around the prob- about the problem and continued construction as if nothing was amiss. It was only when the French nuclear watchdog ordered a series of robustness tests in recent months that the worrying faults came to light. Arriva's incomprehensible silence over the anomalies made it proceed with installing the 160-ton part, which takes six years to complete instead of forging a new one, according to the French nuclear agency. The plant is already running five years late and costs have tripled. So things are in hand. TEPCO over in Japan will deploy large capacity water cannon systems at its new or non non fuk nuclear plant in Niigata Prefecture to prevent diffusion of radioactive materials in case of a disaster. And they'll have to train the crew how to use it. There are 17,000 metric tons of highly radioactive waste in Japan right now, according to Bloomberg. And guess what? No place to put it. And Japan's 11 utilities plan to spend at least 2.4 trillion yen, that's 19 billion, to improve the safety of their nuclear plants. That's one and a half times higher than an estimate made just 18 months ago. So something's growing. News of the Atom, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Oh, and say one more apology of the week. Pope Francis offered a direct apology this week for the complicity of the Roman Catholic Church in the oppression of Latin America during the colonial era. You're welcome.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show called The Show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the Mining 104 floor in Berlin, available for your smartphone. Too smart for his own good phone at Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast at iTunes, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and TuneIn.com and at www.no.org. And it would be just like the Pope apologizing to the other continents if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead, as always, and to Jenny Lawson, as always, at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, your chance to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts, all waiting for you at harryshare.com. And me, I'm the Harry Shearer. At the Twitter. Join the conversation. It's not really a conversation. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO uh, New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Southern California.